Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bible study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Longman. I don't even know what session or episode this is. I, I every time I say it, I'm wrong. So I won't. It's thirty something. Um, we'll start as we usually do. Any questions that anybody has about anything? I was just going to ask if you could um, double check the Greek in the sermon last week. Okay. Because when you said woman. Carol, what have I to do with you? Yeah, yeah. I got a lot of looks, like from next to me. <laughs> so, like to not that. me, his wife. Because you're like, well, Jesus did. Come on. Yeah. Gunai is the word. Gunai is the word. And, and literally, yeah, it means woman, but it's not, it doesn't carry the same implications as it does when we use it that way in English, right? So if you were if you were to say, woman, what is this? You know, it's it's like that's whoa. No, how who talks to their mama like that? But, I always found that just so you know so interesting the fact that I mean he knows what yeah he knows he's gonna do it, but he still yeah. has that conversation. Yeah. And and it's I, I do think and I talk about this a little bit in the message that 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 marks a change in his relationship with his mother. That that this is that's the first miracle that he does in John's telling, and so it's it, it's this it sort of marks the break point between him being raised by Mary and Joseph and him starting in on his ministry where he's in, now in charge of things. Um, and so yeah, the the word is not what it sounds like to us, but but you know there's an and there's it's interesting too if you look at Matthew and Mark's account is probably a little bit clearer about this. But I think it's fair to say that Mary and his brothers and sisters struggled with his ministry and who he was, which is not surprising because like all of his disciples did and, you know, plenty of people struggle with that. But, you know, there's a point in Mark's gospel where he's hanging out with people and he's preaching and talking to them and all that kind of stuff. And his mother and his brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, or however it's said, I can't remember, they show up basically to have him committed. They think he's nuts. They think he has lost his mind. And, and that doesn't come out so much in John's gospel because that's not the point he's trying to make. Um, Matthew and Mark are really emphasizing the, our, our, our inability sometimes to recognize God's activity in our lives. Um, John's got something else going on, so he doesn't need to make that same point. But you do see in that water into wine thing in John chapter 2, this shift that happens. And, and it, I think it's cool because in the end, it's brought back full circle as he commends his mother into, into the care of John the Apostle. Um, and it, it's kind of like she comes around and realizes, okay, that he is the real deal, um, which is sort of neat. I, I wouldn't get into that all in the sermon. But, yeah. We don't hear voice tones. In written scripture. Yeah. So he, no, that's true. He might have not said woman. He might have said woman. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is true. You know, I oftentimes. It's something that's always been funny. <laughs> Come on, it's biblical. <laughs> there, there's, you know, I love your point about that because oftentimes if you read a passage of scripture, it's a great question to ask yourself. If I were the lector for the day, how exactly would I read this? You know, how, how does, there's a passage where 
Uh, it's early in Mark, I think, where, where Jesus comes into the temple and a guy has brought his son who's possessed by a demon and, and it, it you know freaks him out and throws him into fits and throws him into fire and all that kind of stuff. And while they're talking, the kid's having an attack. And, and, and Jesus is like, well, how long has this been going on? And, and you're reading it and you're like, you can just see Jesus going, well, uh, so, you know, the kid's writhing on the floor. And he's like, how long has this been going on? Was, <laughs> so a lot of times it's like, how do you how do you read that and what emotion comes through in it? Because sometimes it's not entirely obvious um, how th- something might have been said or, or spoken. Yeah. But you tell Kristen it's biblical and it's okay. <laughs> Just tell her, tell her that um, Pastor Zishki said so. <laughs> All right. Other questions? COVID's rip roaring, y'all. I don't know if you've seen the numbers, but it's 100,000 plus active cases now. When we dropped the mask mandate in November, there were 4,000. So it's insane. Um, and, and my encouragement, as it has been, is do what you know is right for you. Um, we we've, we've have in the past sort of carved out spaces for, you know, got to wear a mask here, don't have to wear it here, whatever. But as we talked with the elders, we kind of said, you know, this time's a little bit different. Um, because we're so far down the road, people kind of have a better feeling for what's right for them. We've got masks, we've got vaccines, we've got boosters, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we still have the live stream, we've got in-person we just, you know, we've got a space for for distancing. So, be smart, do what's right for you, and uh, we'll support that. It's all and good. my granddaughter's doing very well. Good. It was good. all mild, just fever and self quarantine. Okay. Um, and did doctors' visits virtually? Yeah. What she experienced was with this one, because uh, your system f- tries to fight COVID. Right. She got a, a really bad sore throat. I've heard that several times, yeah. So what they did is they treated for the, ster- uh, the sore throat okay. through steroids. But she she only had fever a couple of days, okay. off and on, but she's Good. back to working. Cool. I appreciate okay. that you adding her. Yeah. But she is doing, doing well. Good. My dad has COVID right now. And his, his only symptom is that he's really lethargic. He said he just can't do anything. And his dog loves it. <laughs> his, his dog's very happy about that. So, yeah. That and he's in prison, so to speak. Um, okay, anything else? Okay, start with the devotion. This is um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have Jesus Christ, who has God's full approval. He speaks on our behalf when we come into the presence of the Father. And the title of this is When We Sin. Luther writes, Who doesn't go astray at times? I and everyone else have need for praise. But when we sin, we shouldn't despair of not finding God's mercy. Whoever imagines that his achievements are worth something mistrusts God's mercy and he sins in the same way. But don't despair after you've sinned. Lift your eyes upward where Christ intercedes for you, for he is your advocate and intercessor. He pleads for you, saying, Father, for this person I have suffered. I'm looking after him. And this prayer is never useless because Christ is our chief priest. Even though we have Christ, our chief priest, advocate, mediator, reconciler, and comforter, 
We have turned instead to dead saints and considered Christ as our judge. That's why we should write this passage from the Apostle John in gold letters and inscribe it on our hearts. So reach out to him and say, Lord Christ, I know of no other advocate, comforter, and mediator than you alone. I don't doubt that you are all this to me. I cling firmly to it and I believe it. Christ was born for us. He suffered for us. He ascended into heaven for our sake. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he prays for us. Satan tries with all his might to blind our hearts so that we will not believe what the Holy Spirit says in this passage. A Christian's condition is wonderful for a Christian is both sinful and righteous. He's a sinful person because of the corrupt nature that he carries with him that's contaminated by sin. But he's a righteous person because the spirit pulls him back from sin. With our reason, we can never understand the wonder of this condition. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. That because we trust in you, we know that our sins are forgiven. and We know that we stand before you righteous and holy, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. We pray that you would always remind us of that. Do not let us despair when Satan throws accusations at us. Remind us always that Christ is our intercessor and he stands before you pleading on our behalf. Be with us today as we study. We thank you that we have this opportunity to gather around your word. We pray that you would guide and lead us in our discussion today as we study uh, Revelation chapter 13. All of it we ask in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Your sheet should say the number 15 up in the top corner. Um, we're looking at Revelation chapter 13, the first section, verses 1 through 10. Um, so I'll go ahead and read that just so it's fresh in our minds. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Oh, cool. We should have let you read it. <laughs> Turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah. I love it. What? <laughs> it's always the granddaughter who's tech support, isn't it? Or grandson. Yeah. Commercial on TV. You've seen that one, haven't you? Where the grandparents are let the grandkids come in. And yeah. And just walk up the door, and grandparents say, "Boy, I'm happy to see you." I just have, you know, the animal. Of the <laughs> I love it. Don't be. It's all good. All right, back to Revelation 13, verse one. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, excuse me, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? 
And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here ends the reading. Um, we kind of talked through some of this stuff in the first several questions. I think we got through 12. Um, we talked about a lot about government and kind of our relationship to government. Um, looking specifically at the ways Paul talks about that in Romans 13, and then um, also the ways that um, John um, writes about it. What was the other passage? Oh, Peter writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, both Paul and, and Peter speak positively of government, and they talk about the, the fact that government is established by God and it's there to bless us and to protect us and to, you know, to avenge wrongdoing and that sort of thing. Revelation's written later, and it's a very different situation because Paul and Peter both wrote at a time when government actually functioned pretty well. By the time John is writing Revelation, government has turned against the Christian church, and Christians are being um, slaughtered purely for their faith by the government. And so John's got a little bit more complicated relationship with government, but still what you see there is this idea of, of pressing back against government when they go against God's commands, um, but also understanding that this sometimes is the cross we have to bear, that we suffer on earth until the end. Um, we talked a little bit about about the American Revolution and whether that might have been God-pleasing or not. That was an interesting discussion. So that brought us up to question number 12, talking about how Pilate, questions 11 and 12, talking about the, how Pontius Pilate was actually, as he spoke with Jesus, he said, I don't, I don't get it. Why aren't you answering my questions? Don't you understand that I've got the power to kill you or to let you go? And Jesus goes, you don't understand that you wouldn't have any power if it hadn't been given to you by my father. And Pontius Pilate ultimately exercises that power by having Jesus crucified. So thinking about that then, question number 13 is, is the first one we haven't done. How did Pilate and the Sanhedrin and Herod and all those leaders who carried forth Christ's execution resemble the beast of the sea as described in Revelation 13, 5 through 7. And I'll remind you of those verses. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, etc. So how to take that imagery and, and let's export it back. How does that 
kind of fit what happened as Pilate and the Sanhedrin and Herod did what they did. These people were all heads of different factions, so that would be like the heads of the beast. Yeah, the, each of them had some sort of power, and, and of course the, the heads and the diadems on them sort of were an indication of power. And you see it coming from a lot of different places, right? So it, there's the Sanhedrin, which is sort of the, the church leadership. Um, you've got Herod, who was really a Jewish leader in that place. You've got Pilate, who's a Roman governor in that place. All of them sort of representing different, as you say, government factions. What else? Other observations about how that fits or doesn't? Could it be a metaphorical retelling of Jesus' trial and execution? I think there's some of that going on for sure. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of this stuff, we talk about kind of how this stuff lays out as it's kind of overlaid with history and that sort of thing. And folks have a tendency to want to take Revelation and, and project it into the future, right. which I think is less helpful than actually taking it and laying it back over history to understand what was going on in history. So, yeah, I think there's some of that, too, that, that what you're seeing is a description of what was going on in metaphorical terms that helped shed some light over the forces that were involved in all of that. It wasn't just that the Sanhedrin made bad decisions, right? Or that Pilate was stuck between a rock and a hard place, although he certainly was. There's more going on, right? And there are these forces that are at play in all of it. H2. God's son would be blasphemed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that would almost be the definition, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, certainly blaspheming the name um, by executing the Son of God. They were given authority for a period of time. Right. So they were in a place of authority, and they had power, and, and legitimately so. Um, and yet, it was power that actually functioned against God. Weirdly, though... <laughs> against God in order to further God's plan. And, and one of the things that I like about this, and it's not necessarily obvious unless you kind of go looking for it, but frequently as you've got these clearly evil forces coming up in Revelation, there's a little phrase that says that it was given authority or it was given permission. And, and so in the background, what you see throughout all of this is that God is still in control. It's just that he sort of withdraws some of his... Um, protection, if you want to call it that, to allow some things to play out. Um, it's the same way if you read John's account of the crucifixion particularly, it's really obvious who's in control of everything, and it's Jesus. He's in control of all of it. And, and everybody else who's involved in the process thinks they're in control. Pilate thinks he's in control. The Sanhedrin thinks they're in control. Herod thinks he's in control. But as you read it closely, it's like, nah, <laughs> Jesus is in control of all of it. He knows what's going on, and he's, he's directing it. Other thoughts? So, I mean, my, what my wrote on here was that all of them held, held significant power. Pilate had the power to order people flogged or killed. The Sanhedrin was able to bring Jesus up on charges. They were able to make war against the saints, <laughs> so to speak, to blaspheme God and all those other things that we see going on. So there are some parallels, at least, even if it's not, you know, maybe it's not all the way to a metaphorical retelling, but at the very least, there are parallels. How does the people's praise of the beast in Revelation 13, 4 parody the praise of God in Exodus 15, 11? 
Somebody find that passage and read it. You'll like this. That's okay. Who is like thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Revelation 13, 4. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Well, who is like you, O Lord? Who's like the beast? In both cases, they proclaim power and majesty. And yet, they're, procl they're proclaiming and worshiping the right thing in one case, the wrong in the other. Thoughts, comments? The significance of 42 months? <clears throat> That's kind of a limiting stretch. Yeah, so it... That plays a lot, and here's how I think that it's best to understand that. We've seen that in the last several chapters in various different ways. 1,260 days, 42 months, a time, times, and half a time, all of these things. But what it ultimately adds up to is three and a half years, okay? And, and remember, numbers in Revelation carry some weight and some meaning. And three and a half, by the way, is half of seven, which is the number of completion. And so I think the best way to understand that is it's referring to a period of time that is not the entirety of history, that is limited, and almost certainly is describing the period of time from Jesus' ascension to his return, which is to say it's now, right? It's it's the time that we're living in. And it's a time when we see that Satan has some power to do some stuff. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And, and we know that Satan is coming against the, the saints in the church. And, but we also know that Christ died and that's already, that our salvation's already accomplished. And so we're in this, this weird kind of now but not yet that we're between the time when Jesus has accomplished everything and yet it's not completely fulfilled and finished, which will come on his return. And that's that 42-month, three-and-a-half-year, 1,260-day period that we're, all, we're living in right now. And, and again, there are, there are commentators who want to try and unwind that in different ways and do some really strange stuff with it. Um, but, but I think it's pretty clear as you read through this and as you kind of take apart the imagery that 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 view the, the view that we hold, which is called amillennialism, by the way, um, which, which takes this whole idea. There's a thousand year period that's playing in here too. That takes all of that and says, no, 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 that's the period that we're living in now. So. Thoughts, comments, questions, complaints. Okay. Um, what kind of beast? Does the purple woman ride in Revelation 17, verse 3? We're jumping ahead a little bit. So the verse says, He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Um, so a scarlet beast covered with blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. Does it sound familiar? 
Have we ever met um, a beast that had ten horns and seven heads and blasphemous names? Yeah. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. Um, what other feature, back to Revelation 17, what other feature of the woman's scarlet beast resembles the beast from the sea? And this points us to 17 verse 8 and 13 verse 3. Somebody got either one of those? Seventeen. <coughs> Verse eight. Uh, I do. Verse eight. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast. That was, and is not, and yet is. All right, and then 13 verse 3 is, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So, do you see any connection there? Any similarities? Some of these questions are a little weird. <laughs> so here's where I think the connection is. In Revelation 17 that Gail just read, um, the notion of was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss versus the head of the beast that seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. As in that head had ruled and was apparently defeated and then had once again risen to power. Okay? So was... Now is not, will come up out of the abyss. One that was had once ruled, was apparently defeated, and then had again risen to power. Now who, who and how does that apply? Is that the Roman Empire? That's probably stretching it. I, I, I'm gonna I would say probably we're talking about Satan. Yeah. And 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 the sequence of events would be um, had ruled in the sense that he was one of the angels and then had apparently been defeated, cast out of heaven. And then all of a sudden he's roaming around here with some power on earth again. What's, what, what's up with that? So I think that's what's going on here. Is this, there's all these kind of allusions to Satan as the beast, as the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's, I think, where we're going with that. So what do the beast's seven heads represent? This is back to 17. Yeah, I mean, Revelation 17, 9 actually gives an answer to that. Um, the seven heads, yeah, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Um, and you talk about kings. There's, there's an attribute of the city of Rome that's kind of important. Rome is actually built on seven hills. Um, and it's sort of known as that. So if, if we're talking about Rome, what's he talking about? And Roman Empire is maybe a piece of that? Seven emperors. Yeah, seven, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think pointing to Rome specifically. Now, 
I'm not positive, but I think Luther might make the argument that he's also pointing to the papacy and Rome as the center of the church. Now, it's too early for that. Understand, this was being written in 90 AD. But that would be one of those cases where I think I think Luther might look at it and pull it forward a little bit and go, ah, look at this. See, I told you that the papacy was the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> but, but I think more than anything, what's going on here is that he's talking about the Roman Empire and he's talking about the evil that is being un- undertaken right. by the empire at the, the time. Right. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and particularly the, the evil that is coming out from the Roman Empire toward Christians to persecute and kill them. that make sense? Okay. Um, and and I, I, may, I may have thrown Luther under the bus, but I have a feeling that's what I mean. <laughs> what about the ten horns? And, and again, in Revelation 17, we actually get an answer for this. What do the ten horns represent? The ten horns that you saw are ten kings, <laughs> Dean, um, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Um, What's the purpose of that? Well, so Revelation 17, I don't know why we're into 17 all of a sudden. Um, verse 10 talks about seven kings, which is, I'm sure, where Dean got that from. Um, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. My cheat sheet, I mean, my study Bible, says <laughs> this likely refers to a series of first century Roman empire, emperors, although we cannot ascertain their identities with precision. Um, again, that, that would be the seven hills, meaning Rome, and then the seven kings being emperors who served in the Roman Empire. Um, and then in 12, it talks about 10 kings. Um, this is likely vassal kings who could aid and abet a usurper like Nero Redivivus in an attempt to seize power. In this regard, during the first century, numerous Caesars ascended to the throne by intrigue and usurpation. There's too many. Yeah. <laughs> How do we keep track of all that? Yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, John's writing about current events. He's, and a lot of what he's writing, remember, is to persecuted Christians who are dealing with all of this stuff that's going on in the Roman Empire and, in the, and you know, the persecution coming down from the emperor. And, and so he's, I think a lot of it is him just kind of making sidelong references to the Roman government that they all knew and understood and, and could kind of make sense of it because that was sort of the world they were living in. You may remember early on I talked about the fact that a good analogy for how to understand what's being written in Revelation and in what's called apocalyptic literature generally is it's sort of analogous to a political cartoon that uses imagery that evokes things that we can make sense of because we're living through it. You know, and we kind of understood if we lived through the 80s that a bear represented the Soviet Union and that, you know, that was an evil um, empire and you know that kind of imagery that we all can make sense of because we kind of all were part of it. But when you look at, at Revelation, that that's not our world, and so it's hard for us to pick up on the imagery that John's using because it makes sense to them and not so much to us because we're 
pretty far removed from it. Yeah. The interesting thing is that this thing is written, I call it kind of a broad brush type thing, mm -hmm. where you can take this into a modern day site right. and it fits real right. well. Right. And, and a lot of what it is, I, I think, is yes, John's describing an actual situation, but he's also describing the state of a fallen world. That, which is why it's so easy to pick it up and just sort of drop it on, on several different time periods and say, oh, that makes sense. I mean, you could look at it and go, oh, this is clearly the Roman Empire. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, pick it up and go, oh, this is clearly the British Empire. So I never said something about, you know, or you can pick it up and go, clearly, this is the United States. <laughs> and the description in here, when he talks, it says the 10 horns represent kings of nations yet to arise. Yeah. It says Rome will be followed by other powers. Ah, a good example of how the Antichrist system will work, demanding complete allegiance and ruling by raw power, oppression, and slavery. Yeah. Whoever the ten, ten kings are, they will give their power to the Antichrist and will make war against the Lamb. So the, these are, in John's time, these are things that are going to happen there you some go. time yep. in the future. Yep. But he's referring to the same as Rome, really. Yeah. The Roman Empire. It's, yeah, new... Um, same same story, different name. Yeah. Different place. Different people. Whatever. Yeah. Doing the same thing. Cool. Um, I think the, the part about thinking who is John writing to yeah. and what was the state of the world at the time makes it so much clearer. I think that's helpful. Yeah. I agree. And I think we forget about that when we're reading scripture. Who are they talking to? Right. What is their frame of reference? Right. That's exactly right. That's... I think it's important to have in mind who the original audience was of whatever book you're reading. So, you know, if you're if you're reading Matthew's gospel, for example, who's he talking to? Why is he saying the things he's saying? Well, Matthew, for the most part, was talking to a Christian audience that had a really strong Jewish background, which is why Matthew doesn't spend so much time explaining Jewish rituals and stuff like that, because he knows they kind of already get it. But you look at Luke... <laughs> Luke is, this, is a doctor who's gathered all this information. He's like really meticulous with his stuff. And he's writing more toward a Gentile audience to explain things to them. So he does take apart some stuff. And he does say, oh, this is why this is the way it is. This is what's going on here. So that you go, oh, I didn't even know that. Interesting. <laughs> but, but, you know, their audience has an impact on how and what they say. And, and I don't want you to think that I'm taking anything away from divine inspiration, okay? Understand the Holy Spirit inspired all this stuff to be written. But it's not like the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of John and just started writing words. He still used John as, the, as a means to get that done. And of course, John's personality and John's experiences and John's situation all play into that to what he was inspired to write and so forth. So yeah, it's totally inspired, but it's not like devoid of John's personality either. And, and you see that, I mean, read, you know, read anything that Paul wrote and then and anything that like any of the John's shorter little epistles, first, second, third John, and then go read Hebrews. Well, that's a whole different book, you know, completely different a, a, approach. Because there are personalities involved in it, and, and God uses our personalities and used our personalities, or the personalities of those he inspired to write. Does that make sense? See where I'm going with it? I think also the Holy Spirit 
triggered them mm -hmm. to write certain stories or bring out certain points yeah. yep. as part of the God-inspired so yeah. that thousands of years later, these truths are just as valid to us in our time. Right, right. And, and to your point then, there's the first audience to whom it was written, but that doesn't diminish the fact that it's also written to us and it has value and meaning for us too. So the, it, it always kind of plays on two levels. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, you can apply anything. Like today, we can say, well, they're referring to China. China's yeah. going to become a right. superpower. Right. They're going to control everything. You know what I mean? Right. Or like Russia's going to go into Ukraine now. Well, this is Russia. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just, you know, you just pick it up and go, oh, yeah. see, it fits. Perfect. Yeah. And the reason it fits is because that's the state of the world we live in. That's how it is. Not because. It's like some attempt to like lay out a timeline of everything to the end. It's a book of comfort in the end. That's what it's about, is reminding people that your faith is rightly placed, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that that salvation is correct and done, and whatever stuff you have to deal with between now and when Jesus returns, here's what the outcome is going to be, and it's good for those of us who are in Christ. Other thoughts? Stalling a little bit because I've only got one more question. <laughs> Revelation 13, verse 10. Somebody read that. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. This is a really dangerous question. But there is a call for the entrance and faith of the saints. Thank you. How do you apply that verse to your life? <laughs> it's a dangerous question, isn't it? Well, yeah, if anyone's going to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone's to be slain with a sword, well, with the sword he must be slain. How do you apply that to your life? What do you do with that? This comes back to what you were saying, Pam. What Exactly what intonation do you put on this phrase. How does it apply to your life? What does it mean? I see it as the comfort and strength to get through, have the faith to get through whatever Whatever it is. Yeah. Including death. Mm -hmm. Including horrible death, right? Mm -hmm. To know that whatever that might be, the outcome at the end, we know. Yeah, I like that. Just, what do you think? You had this look on your face, Elaine. What do you? <laughs> I'm trying to absorb. <laughs> John. So kind of similar to that. It, to me, it's be strong, keep the faith. Because yeah. reading that, like, to, if anyone's to be taken captive, captivity, he goes. It's all from a faith perspective. Like, you have to remember again, they're being taken into captivity because of their faith. Yeah. So this still applies to us, right? Yeah. It Who knows? Maybe in 50 years, the U.S. will be someplace radically different. Right? And, well, sure. some of us <laughs> will be living in that I world. see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, keep, be strong, keep your faith, yeah. because this is, this is a call for endurance of your faith. And then to me, it just kind of brings us all the way back to whatever it was, Revelation 4 or something, where you see the saints under the altar. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, wow, okay, that might be me. Yeah. But I'm here with all of these other saints. They did it. I can do this too. Yeah. I have all of this support and God bringing me through all of this. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Pastor, because when we, when we joined this church, yeah. we said that we would pledge 
to follow Christ, even to death. Yes. Y'all remember you said that, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's actually, that's an interesting discussion that I have with confirmands. Right before the confirmation service, we sit down and we talk about what it is you're saying yes to. And part of it is, that question is the, is the one where, because there's one of them that leads up to it. I don't remember exactly. But it's something along the lines of, um, do, you, do you promise that you will you know, remain in the faith and, and be faithful to this church and so forth? And then it goes on and says about even to death. And, and what I say to the confirmands is, guys, this is the, do you mean it? No, do you really mean it? Question. And, and I think you're right, John, that the point here is, you can really mean that because you have the certainty of knowing what the outcome looks like at the end. And so, you know, whatever may come, we've got this image of the saints under the altar, protected by God, gathered in by him even after death, to know that whatever persecution might come because of our faith, and it will, and Jesus said it himself. He's like, I, you know, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. You know, he says, hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And, and so whatever, you know, what's the other thing he said? If you want, to be my, you want to be my disciple, take up your cross. Come on, it's going to be great. You know, but he makes the point. He's like, I'm not, this is not rainbows and unicorns, y'all. Like, this is real life. And it's going to be hard. And, and being faithful to this, you will have temptations and you will have pressures to not be faithful to this. But in the end, your faith is correct and your salvation is certain and done. And and that and words like these can carry you through whatever you might have to face in the meantime and and give you the strength to stand up and say, no. You know, I think of of some of these stories of the... um, the Christians that ISIS had been persecuting and stuff like that, who, who were willing to stand up when they were told to renounce their faith and say, no, I'm faithful to God and to Jesus, knowing that that meant death. That's where that comes from, is that certainty of knowing. Pam? My Bible had a, a reference verse from Jeremiah 15.2. Okay. And it says, and if they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. Those destined for death to death. Those for the sword to the sword. Those for starvation to starvation. Those for captivity to captivity. So it's a it's an echo. Yeah. So much of Revelation is. <laughs> right? That there's I mean, it's not like John just made this stuff up out of whole cloth. You know, he actually is echoing themes that are elsewhere in scripture. I love that that had that. That's cool. Yeah. Other thoughts, comments, questions? Yeah, definitely has a different meaning for a compliment than it does somebody like that. True. Me. Yeah. <laughs> that that actually is true. I, I think like a life sentence, you know. All right. <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, you have a little different experience and right. expertise in that, having seen a lot in the course of your life that a compromise has not seen. Um, and, and that's why I sort of hammer that point home. I'm like, do you mean it? Do you really mean it? Because that's what we're saying yes to. When we say, yeah, I'm going to be part of this church. And, I'm, and yeah, I mean it. This is right. 
Other comments, thoughts? There are highs and lows, everybody. We get older, we all know that, highs and lows. And I remember uh, in Iowa, a uh, sign on the, the hospital there was a Lutheran hospital, and uh, it sign on the wall said, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. And that's a comfort. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? This too shall pass. And, you know, not just that. To your point, Mac, that, you know, those of us who have a few more years on us also have a few more experiences to look back and see how God provides for us and cares for us and brings us through the stuff that is hard to get through. And it's easier when you've got that experience to go back and to say, wait a minute, I remember when such and such happened, or I remember when I thought that it was hopeless and now I can look back and see how God carried me through it. It's the whole, it's that sappy um Footprints in the Sand poem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it too. I mean, it, but it's sappy, but it actually, it, there's truth in it, right? That, that you all you know, know what I'm talking about, right? You all heard it. Yeah. But this reminder that, you know, I can look back on my life and I can see the ways that God has carried me through things. And I know whatever difficulty I'm in right now, he's going to carry me through that too. Somehow. I don't know what it looks like, but I know that he's going to get me through it. Well, when you're older and you look back, um, there's an awful lot of coincidences yeah. in your life. Yeah. That aren't really. That aren't. <laughs> that aren't really, yeah. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Yeah, that's true. That's a part of the plan. Y'all buying this, you young people down there at the end? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> All right. I, I have not printed um, Lesson 16, so we'll, we'll wrap up with that, unless anybody has anything else they want to talk about. It's your chance to direct the class. Um, for those of you who haven't heard, we're working on an update to the photo directory. Um, the last time we did one was 2018, and I have scanned those, but they're really crappy pictures. So unless unless you want to have a really blurry picture of you, you probably want an update. Tony right here is, is managing all of that for us and doing a great job with it. As we get to a point where it's workable, we're actually going to release a, a photo directory app um, on your phone that you can load, and you'll be able to pull people up and see where they live and see their pictures. And, it's a secure app. It is a secure app. You have to have a login, so you're not giving your stuff to everybody. So anybody um, who's in this room, since we've got time. Exactly. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I've got You need to get with Tony? We have how many people in there? 200 and... There's over 250 members. 250 families, actually. Family, right. And yeah. we've got 81, 81 pictures. 81 pictures. That's not so, very So, 82, 83, <laughs> 84. He's not that good at Photoshop. What's that? He's not that good. <laughs> yeah. You can take an old picture. Yeah, that's true. Send it to me. So you can email a picture to directory at holytrend.org, and that'll go directly to Tony. Or um, catch Tony, and she'll take a picture of me. She's ready to go. Um, call committee update. If you didn't hear it, we've, we have 14 names nominated um, for associate pastor. That list, along with a list of qualifications, has been sent to the district president. 
Um, he will vet those names. Some of those names that have been nominated just are not available. We don't know that yet, but he will take some names off of the list. He will add names to the list, and we'll get a big packet of information from them that the call committee will go through to set up um, interviews and that kind of stuff. So that's moving forward. Um, I think that's it. Construction projects. You know, we got two coming. One is down this hallway. We've got some renovations that we have to do to come up to code so we can open up the Parents' Day Out program. Um, most of those are, for example, we've got to cut a new exterior door in one of the classrooms. We've got to put a sink in. We've got to upgrade the fire alarm system. There's a couple of other things. Um, we have permits in hand for that. So that will start as soon as some of the construction materials come in, probably in the next couple of weeks. The other project is to carve out a new office for our new associate pastor. And Skip is managing that project. Um, I'm working on trying to find out where we stand on permits because I know they have been applied for, but I don't know if we got them yet. Um, I know we have passed the security reviews that had to be passed. So as soon as we have a permit, which should, I hope, this week, um, that will get underway, and that should be a fairly quick project. So. I think you'll have it done in three, four days. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's that we're going to carve space out of the cry room. So, we have that giant cry room if you go down the hallway by the workroom, that we're going to carve an office out of that so that he's. Cameron's old office will become storage for the food pantry. Because right now, Krista has to go from her office all the way over to that storage room by the Life Center. This will put it right next to her. It will just simplify her life, um, which is important because she's back and forth a lot. So that'll, that'll make that a little easier. Yeah. What else? What's going to happen to the old storeroom? Um, we've got plenty of other stuff to store in it. <laughs> Kitchen stuff or stuff, um, stuff? I, I think I'm not sure exactly. It will probably be some of the stuff that right now is in the storage room in the Life Center, which is kind of jam-packed. Mm -hmm. So we'll probably pull some things out that are not tables and chairs and store those away in there. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? I sure appreciate y'all. I love the time we spend together on Sundays, and I'm glad you're here. Glad the weather broke. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's close with a prayer. Uh, gracious Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for beautiful weather. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the opportunity to gather around it and to be fed by it and to learn from it. Um, I thank you for each and every person in here. I thank you for the faith that you have given them, um, for the salvation that you have won for them. I pray that you would strengthen their faith, that you would um, carry them through whatever trials and tribulations may be in front of them, um, that you would just comfort them with your constant presence and your power. Um, be with Brittany, uh, especially as she's awaiting the arrival of their baby. Um, be with John as well and just give them the comfort of knowing that uh, the baby will come when it's ready to come and that you're right there with it. Um, we lift all of it up to you. We give you thanks and praise and we ask all of it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.